Avery. My water. All right. Let's pray. Father, this evening, we're so grateful to be in your presence. We ask tonight, Lord, that you allow your word to speak to our hearts as we look in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord God, and all that he has that he wrote then that's applicable for us hundreds of years later. Your word is alive, Lord God, and we thank you for it. Bless our time together in the name of Yeshua. Amen. All right, in Jerusalem, what is the main thing when you think of Jerusalem? What, what is there as far as structure-wise, architecture-wise? What's the main thing that comes to your mind when you think of Jerusalem? The Western Wall. The Western Wall. In Israel, the Western Wall is known by the Jewish people as the Kotel, which means um, Western or Wall. And this amazing structure is 1,601 feet in length, 62 feet high. But what a lot of people don't realize is that that's, that 52 feet high is only about a little over half of the Kotel's overall height. There's close to 50 feet of that wall that is underground, lower than the city level, city streets level. And that structure beneath is very important because that's the foundation to the wall. Now, you can go on tours. They have them where you can actually go and take a tour of the underground and, and see the foundational structures, and it's absolutely amazing. But there's one stone in particular. It's the key foundation stone to the entire hotel. It is 10 feet, 10 and a half feet high. So almost as high as the ceiling in height. All right, it is 44 feet long, which is about the width of the sanctuary, okay? And it is 15 feet deep in thickness. That's one stone, okay? That one stone weighs 570 tons. Put that for, if you have pickup trucks, a Ford F-150 one-ton pickup, so imagine 570 Ford F-150 pickups and you get the weight. To put it in better perspective for us today, that would be 1,140,000 pounds for one stone. 1,140,000 pounds. In 1 Kings 5, 15 through 17, uh, it talks about what Solomon is. He's preparing the building to prepare the uh, temple. And it says that Solomon had 80,000 men who quarried stones, large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. But almost 140 years prior to Solomon building, beginning to build the temple, Isaiah the prophet wrote a remarkable passage. If you will turn with me this evening to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. It speaks about a sure foundation, and that's what I want to talk about this evening. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, 
a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily, or whoever believes will not be put to shame. So let's break down this verse this evening and see what Isaiah was talking about. He starts out the, the verse with the word, therefore. And you've maybe heard it before, and it's kind of silly, but it works. Whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you look to see what it's there for. Okay? And so if you were to read through the beginning passages of um, Isaiah 28, it speaks about the priests and the prophets who erred through intoxicating drink and stumbling judgment. In other words, these men that were supposed to be the leaders of Israel, the priests and the prophets, the false prophets, they were out for their own selfish gain. They were enjoying life. They were drinking. But it says they were not teaching the people precept upon precept, line upon line, the word of God. They are too busy self-indulging themselves. But it says rather they were teaching a little, here a little, there a little. Therefore, therefore, verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord God, behold. Now, I could do a whole study on the word behold tonight. Okay? It's a powerful word. It really is. It means that I, what God is saying here in this passage as he speaks, as Isaiah wrote it down, God is saying, I'm about to give you supernatural insight, and it's something I want you to consider greatly. I want you to value what I'm about to say, God says. I want you to wonder at what I'm about to say. I want you to appreciate it. I want you to build upon this. Behold. Yeshua, Jesus, used this all the time when he would say, as we see it in some of our translations, verily, verily, I say unto you. When you see those words repeated twice, that would be like an English saying one word and saying, putting a big exclamation point afterwards. I'm trying to get your attention, like someone raising their voice. I'm trying to get your attention here, and God says, I'm about to give you something of such great value that I want you to appreciate it, behold it, wonder at it. He says, behold, I lay in Zion. Now, those words, I lay in Zion, are not to me the best translation. I'd rather say, behold me, God, this is God speaking, behold me as him who has done this. I have laid a stone. Behold, I am about to do something. I'm the one that's responsible for what's going to take place. I'm the one that's going to do this great thing that you're going to behold and see. And you're going to be amazed by about what I'm about to do. He said, I lay a stone for a foundation. Now, I've seen pictures of this one stone, this massive stone underneath the hotel. I didn't take the tour, didn't get a chance to see it. Someday I hope to do, to do that and see it. But the pictures of it are absolutely incredible. It's huge. It's, it's beyond imagination. A foundation, as any of you know, if you build something small or large, it has to be solid rock. It has to be. We have, you know, we have the old story, don't build your house on the sand. The winds and the storms came, the sand washed away, and, and the house fell. But the other man built his house upon the rock. It was a sure foundation. He says, I lay a stone. He's not talking about a stone like you would see out in the garden or something. He's, he's talking about something that's solid, that's sure. The Hebrew word for stone is eben. And it means to build as from hewn stone. So right there, it takes it from a stone to being something large and significant, heavy in weight, something that won't wash away, something you can build upon. 
And not just any stone. This stone must possess certain qualities. Certain qualities that have to be used to build that foundation on. By the way, the word foundation comes from the Hebrew word yasad. And yasad means to settle or to establish. So I want to look tonight at three specific qualities that have to be found in a stone, in a hewn stone, that is used for a foundation. And something else is going to come out of that, obviously, but we're going to look at three qualities tonight, and you'll understand as we go further along. The first quality, he says here in Isaiah, he says it must be a tried stone. Okay, the Hebrew word for tried is bochan, and it is a word that means something or someone that has been tested or gone through trials. Now, my, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is when Yeshua feeds the 5,000. He feeds the 5,000 people, and then he tells his disciples, go get in a boat and cross over. And Jesus, of course, comes to them in the middle, and you know they're all freaked out when they see him and everything else. And walking on water is not a thing that would, people would say, oh, wow, look at there's Jesus. I would be shocked and, and, and dismayed like they were. They thought they were seeing a ghost. But he gets in and he, he challenges them by their little faith. If you think about what took place, Jesus first starts out by saying, hey, okay, how much food do we have? Well, we have five loaves and a couple of fish. You feed them. Their first thought is from a humanistic standpoint is we don't have, how's five loaves and two fishes? Or we don't have enough money. There's no place around to buy bread. They think of all the ways humanly to satisfy all these people. But when Jesus says, you feed them, it's like, no, you don't understand the situation. But Jesus takes the five loaves and two fishes and blesses them, and they see this mighty miracle take place right in front of them as the fish and the loaves are multiplied. Yeshua was trying to expand their faith, trying to teach them much further than just what they could understand and comprehend. And like any good teacher, he then wants to put them to a test. Sends them out on the lake, and there's a great storm, and they're all trying to bail out water and get the sails right, and the wind is blowing contrary. And Jesus appears to them. And he says, oh, you have little faith. How many of you went to school and hated teachers that were really, really hard on you? I mean, it seems like the teachers that were the hardest on me were the ones that I learned the most from if I was willing to sit and listen. The coaches that pushed me the most in sports were the ones that got the most out of me. The people that put us through hard and challenging times do so to get the best qualities out of us. And it's the same with Yeshua. He always gave tests. Teachers give tests. They do it for a reason. And so it has to be a tried stone, something that's gone through the fire, something that's been purged. Your faith individually tonight is based so much on the trials you've gone through in life. It increases our faith. God wants to stretch our faith muscles, and the more trials he puts us through, the greater our faith. Janice and I had a good friend uh, when we were young believers, and his name was Eric Jackson. And 
I remember so clear the day he said, I pray for trials so that my faith might grow. I said, well, good luck with that. You know, it's not something I pray for, but when trials come, how do we handle them? Do we handle them like, like we don't say, well, praise God for the trial. He put on God. No, we, we always pray, God, let it go by quickly or let me learn from this trial. Or, you know, but we don't always feel comfortable going through them. But the trying of our faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect faith, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the first quality is being tried, being tested, going through hardships, the challenges, the rigors of trials to prove that that stone is trustworthy. The second thing in Isaiah that he says is that it must be a precious cornerstone. Now Hebrew, the Hebrew word for precious is yakar, and it means something that's costly or of great worth. And here the stone is not only precious, but it's a cornerstone. Anybody know anything about building and what a cornerstone is? It can be a capstone on top. It can be a cornerstone on the foundation. It's something that holds the two joints of a wall together. And it's one of the most important pieces of any structure. Now, the word cornerstone comes from the Hebrew word rosh pina. Okay, and rosh pina is... It means chief or pinnacle or head, the primary stone. And it's also a, a name of a small town in the northern Galilee in the Hula Valley. And the reason I know this is because Janice and I lived in northern Galilee. We lived in Tiberias, right on the Sea of Galilee. And that was a place that we discovered while we lived there for four years that became our go-to place for prayer. It had a little bit of altitude to it, so in the summer when it got hot, we knew we could go to cool off there. There was a beautiful overlook at the top of this one hill. You could see all of the Hula Valley. The Hula Valley, by the way, when the settlers from Russia first started coming in in the early 1900s, was a swamp. It was infested with malaria-carrying mosquitoes, and many Jewish people died trying to settle that Hula Valley. Today, it is one of the most lush, green, produce-producing areas in all of Israel. It's, it's beautiful, and it stretches all the way up to Mount Hermon. The Hula Valley is, is gorgeous. So it was a place that we love to go to pray. But it also holds some special significance because we met a man when we first got to Israel. His name was Ariel. And he was a structural engineer, which is interesting. We're talking about foundations and things. He was a structural engineer by trade. But what was unique about this man is that he was living in Rosh Pina when a small revival broke out in that area. Started by a Bible study, some people had a study, and he was one of the very first Jews in the area of Rosh Pina to get saved. So he became a Messianic Jew, and he's an, he was an amazing man to talk to. So this city, Rosh Pina, is beautiful because it means literally chief cornerstone. And it was the place that we, not knowing the background of the history when we first went there, we found peace when we were there. We found just this place where we could pray and seek God, and we did it to intercede for the people we were trying to reach, as well as other things going on in our lives and for family members and things. And, and it was an amazing place. Just, what, once a week at least we went up there and spent our time there. It was our, that was our prayer getaway place. And if you don't have something special like that, it could be 
in your own home. It could be in your yard. It could be somewhere. Find a place where you just really sense God's presence and go there. Grab your, if you're married, grab your wife, your family, whatever. Go there and spend time and make that a special place. God will bless you as you endure and spend time in prayer. All right. The third key quality that is listed here in Isaiah for this stone was a sure foundation. Now, the Hebrew word for sure is musad. Now, don't, con- don't confuse that with the Mossad, which is the CIA of Israel, okay? This is Musad. It's a little bit different. And it means a lack of wavering. A sure foundation literally means a lack of wavering, to be steadfast, to be reliable. So these three qualities, all these adjectives for the word stone, tried, precious cornerstone, sure foundation, our uh, adjectives are usually used to better define a noun, in this case, the word stone. But what Isaiah is alluding, alluding to here, and he, as he penned these words from God that God put in his mouth, he, we have to know why and who. Who is he speaking of? Who is that chief cornerstone? Who is that Rosh Pina? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, we see this verse quoted almost verbatim. 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. And it says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by, be, will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, now going, it continues on, but it's quoting Isaiah, it's quoting Psalm 118.22, Therefore, to you who do believe, he, Yeshua, is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a state of stumbling and a rock of offense. Excuse me, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, Isaiah 8.14. Yeshua also quotes out of Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, speaking of himself, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 21, 42, Yeshua says of himself, Behold, he says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What Isaiah spoke of in chapter 28, verse 16 is actually a messianic prophecy. So let's now apply those three qualities found in Isaiah 28 to Yeshua himself. Yeshua HaMashiach. All right? A tried stone. Was Yeshua tried? How? Name some ways. Just somebody name one way that Yeshua was tried in his lifetime. 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. Okay? What's another way that he was tried in his life? The trial trial itself. He was tried. He was scourged and beaten and, and he was crucified. Any other ways that he was tried? 
Yeah. Being human. Yeah, there we go. I think of the questions of the Pharisees. They are constantly questioning him, constantly trying to corner him, constantly trying to accuse him. The trials that went on forever and ever. Well, until at least he'd answered all their questions so fully that they finally realized they couldn't trick him, you know, so they finally quit asking him the questions, and I like that. So, yes, he was tried. Okay, secondly, does Yeshua fit the description of a precious cornerstone? Well, yeah, Yeshua himself is the chief cornerstone. Ephesians, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. Put yourself in these words as you read it to yourself. And members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, yes, but, it says, Yeshua HaMashiach himself being the chief cornerstone, the Rosh Pina, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we have this, by the way, throughout Scripture, you're going to see, and I, I had so many that I had to kind of bypass, or I would spend this into a two-hour study tonight, but there are more passages about the cornerstone than almost any other subject in the New Testament. It's, it's referenced throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, so many times. All right, the third quality that Yeshua would have to, uh, to show in order to be that true Rosh Pina is being a sure foundation. Is Yeshua reliable? Is he steadfast? Is he unwavering? Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul was writing, and he was going to put into words some qualities that I absolutely love when I read out of Philippians. And he says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and having been found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is he reliable? Most definitely. You know, there are more than 300 Old Testament prophecies declaring who the Messiah would be, how he would come, where he was to be born, what his lineage would be, over 300 of them. That's, that's a lot of prophecies. Now, those who have studied out all those prophecies, Yeshua fulfilled them all. But let's try to downsize that a bit because I can't wrap my head around 300 prophecies. Let's say if Yeshua only fulfilled, let's see, I'm looking at you, so that'll be this way, eight prophecies. Let's say he only fulfilled eight prophecies. Okay, now that doesn't sound like an awfully lot, um, but it's the only way I can really put this into perspective. It's, 
it equals 10 to the 17th power. Now that's a number, I'm not a mathematician, but 10 to the 17th power is a huge number, just to fulfill eight prophecies. So let's put it into something that we can understand, and maybe you've heard this before. Take the state of Texas and sink it, put two feet deep of silver dollars covering the entire state of Texas. Two feet deep, all covered with silver dollars. Take one of them, just one, paint it red, and then go and stick it in the pile somewhere, dig down, whatever you want to do, and put it in there. Now, blindfold one man, blindfold one man, and send him out so you can walk anywhere in the entire state of Texas, anywhere you want to go, but you have one shot, stop, bend down, and pull out that red silver dollar. That's 10 to the 17th power. Okay, it's a number that goes with so many zeros, I wouldn't be able to write them down. That's the chances of one man fulfilling eight prophecies for the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. What Isaiah is trying to get us to understand is he is talking, God is saying, I am going to send this sure foundation that is going to radically change everything. And this is what he's going to be like. These are the qualities he's going to have. Finally, at the end of our passage in Isaiah 28, it says this, Isaiah 28, 16, the final words are, whoever believes in him will not act hastily, will not be put to shame. Now, what I'm going to read, I want you to again make personal. You don't have to turn there, but in Joel chapter 2, if you want to write it down, if you're taking notes, verses 26 and 27, it says this, you shall eat and put, make this personal. Think about your name here. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Remember what it says at the end of this? Is, I shall not be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is none other. My people shall never be put to shame. We have our hope in Yeshua HaMashiach, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the chief cornerstone. He is our firm foundation. He is our Rosh Pina, our Messiah, who died for our sins, rose again three days later, defeated sin and death on our behalf, and gave us eternal life, and he's coming to take us home. Isaiah, in this prophecy about a chief cornerstone, remember what I said in the beginning. I said the word behold. Now, again, it's, it's a powerful word, insight that I'm about to give you. So if you're taking notes, turn your notes over because now I'm going to, as a teacher, give you a test. All right? I'm going to give you a test. Is there anyone here that can tell me what the three qualities that I spoke of tonight of that stone? There's three specific qualities. And if you give them an order, that's even better. Can anybody tell me what those three qualities are? Has to be tested. It's precious. And it's sure. It's solid. Sure foundation. This says Rosh Pina on it. So, sorry guys, she spoke up first, so. 
So we realize that, um, I realize that sometimes when the Lord's trying to get my attention, you know, I, I wish I would hear an audible voice. I wish I would hear from heaven, behold, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, Rob, I'm trying to get your attention here. But he does in so many ways through his word. If we take the time and, and we read it and we say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Scriptures that we might read over and not fully understand. Uh, my, my wife studies Hebrew three hours plus a day. She writes in Hebrew. She's amazing. I started getting into it a little bit and you know, I just couldn't wrap my head around a language that reads right to left and, you know, and there's no vowels. And it's just a, it's a very unique language and it takes discipline to learn, especially when you get older. Uh, especially like me when your memory begins to fade. But the Hebrew language is amazing. And the words in it as we study them out, and that's why when I said these things, I said it means in Hebrew this, or this is the Hebrew word. My greatest passion, or one of my greatest passions, is the country of Israel. And in Israel, if you don't study it and learn about it, then a lot of things that we read in Scripture don't always make sense to us. The more we know of its history, the more we know of its people, the more we know of its geographical layout and what was happening in what areas and where this was taking place. When I would teach at the Bible College in the Golan Heights up in northern Israel, it's Calvary Chapel Bible College up there, I had the privilege of taking the students on outings. And we'd be driving along in, in the vehicle, and I'd be pointing out things as we were reach, going to our destination and just saying, this happened here. Oh, there's Mount Tabor. That's, that's where Barak and Deborah had the great battle. You know, that's where Yael put the tent peg through the... Through the, um, the um, general's head. This is where this happened. This is where this took place. Uh, we lived right across from Mount Arbel, and Mount Arbel and the, and the mountain next to it had a, a valley that went up in between them, and we hiked through that valley, and that was the valley that Yeshua would take when he would go from Galilee, heading either to Nazareth or eventually to Jerusalem. That's the road that Yeshua would travel, the trail that he would walk on. So we'd see these things, and it would put life into what we were to understand. We swam in the Sea of Galilee almost three, four times a week in the summertime because when it was full, it was a nice way to cool off. And we thought of all the stories that took place in and on the Sea of Galilee and these things that took place and it made everything more alive. We'd see locations and areas and apply it to where we are reading and say, this, this happened right here. So my encouragement to you tonight as you read God's word, Pull out the maps in the back of your Bible. Look for these places. You might have to go online. I find great maps online that I can look. Um, cities that are mentioned in the Old Testament that aren't on a lot of maps in the back of your Bible, and I start writing the spots in myself um, so that it becomes more real to you and not just stories. It, breathe, lets, it, it lets life breathe into it. The more you know and learn about Israel, the more the Bible becomes alive. And that's only part of it. The second thing I want to encourage you tonight is learning more about the Israel today and what's going on in Israel. Lots of great places you can look. If you want to just look at daily news, you can put in Times of Israel. And they, they, sometimes there's some 
um, some news from America. They'll say what's happening with Biden or something like that. But predominantly, it's about Israel. And by reading, you therefore have a better understanding about how to pray for Israel, what's going on with Israel, what's happening in Judea and Samaria, not the West Bank. My Bible, your Bible, all of our Bibles, unfortunately, in the back, if you open them up and look at a map, I know mine does, it says West Bank, and it has lines through it, though, so it means occupied, all right? And up here in Golan Heights that, that Trump gave back, but they have lines through it, and it says occupied. It's not occupied. And I'll just, this is just off the note of that, but a real, a real fast history lesson. When an attacking country attacks a t country that's defending its own territory, in this case, whether it was 1948, 1973, 19, whatever the different wars that took place, Israel was always defending herself against outside attack from Egypt, from Lebanon, okay, from Syria, from Egypt. Okay? And when they defended themselves, according to every convention and everything that's taken place in the history of man, when a defending country protecting itself and its own territory pushes an invading army out, they can claim the land that they pushed them out of that's not theirs. When Israel defeated Egypt, all right, they took over the entire Sinai Peninsula and Jerusalem or and Israel in a swap for peace thing with Egypt said, if you make peace with us, we'll give the entire Sinai Peninsula back. They didn't have to. The mandates of war saying if you take over territory from somebody that's attacking you and you take over some of their territory... It's yours. Golan Heights, for the perfect example, from Syria. They pushed, pushed Syria back, and they claimed that which actually was Israel's already, but they reclaimed it. But a country that's defending himself and pushes the country back, they cannot call the, the territory that they've taken, they cannot call that occupied. It was already theirs. Israel was defending itself in all of these wars, therefore it cannot be called occupied territory. And that's been in history the story, but for Israel's sake, they reversed it and said, no, it's occupied. So, look up places like Times for Israel and others and read what's going on politically, the things that are happening, There's, uh, there was the shootings and things that are taking place and, and uh, settlements in the West Bank and the arguments and things that are going on with Netanyahu and the different things about his government is very different than our type of government. So, you read these things and you know how to pray for Israel. And that's key today. As believers, you have to understand, your roots, all of our roots, as believers in Yeshua, are in Israel. If Israel had not had the Messiah come there, and all, now, I love when we would talk to Jewish people, and then you get, try to get things through their head, like, for instance, they would not read the New Testament. They will not read the New Testament because they think it's, it's full of, of a bunch of you know, things against Israel. Okay, they won't read it. They think it's anti-Semitic from cover to cover, the New Testament. But when they, if they do are willing to read it, they go, oh, it's about a Jewish man, Yeshua. His disciples and followers were all Jewish. Those that first came to know the Lord after his resurrection in thousands at a time were all Jewish. And they go, oh, we didn't know. They thought it was some kind of an American Messiah, some kind of American God, something that was made up in, in the United States. The, many of them, I've, I've given this talk before. I said, did you guys know that 
Jesus was Jewish. And people in, in, in the churches would laugh, but I'd say, no, seriously, because he is our roots. We are the wild olive branches grafted in. And by that, we would not have the Messiah if it wasn't for the Jews, if it wasn't for Jesus, who himself was Jewish. We are grafted in. So we have a responsibility to pray for the Jews, to pray for their salvation, to pray for their country, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So I encourage you tonight, make Israel a part of your, you know, not necessarily daily, but just even just once a week, you know, to read something about Israel. Look up on Times of Israel, other sites. There's a great place to, to follow up um, on Jewish people who have become believers in Yeshua. They call them Messianic Jews. And it's called One with Israel. One for Israel, excuse me. One for Israel. And it's all mostly American Jews, uh, predominantly, but others in Israel as well, but who have found Messiah through reading Isaiah 53 or having someone share with them or, or something, and their testimonies are powerful. They're, they're dynamic. I've never seen one that I didn't like. And these, they're only maybe three or four minutes long, so it doesn't take you a long time, but they just give a real basic short coverage of how they came to know Messiah as Savior, and they're powerful. But it gives you understanding about their mindset and, again, how to pray for those who have not yet given their lives to Yeshua. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a sure foundation, Lord. You are the chief cornerstone, the precious stone, that stone that the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone. You are our Lord and Savior, our Rosh Pina. And we thank you for the work that you did on the cross that you rose from the dead, that we might have eternal life in you. Thank you for the nation of Israel and all that it represents for us today. May we be praying for it daily and asking you to do a mighty work in the hearts of all those who are still waiting for a Messiah to come. Lord, uh, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, all the records of the genealogies were lost in the fire. There is no way to trace back the genealogy to the tribe of Judah, which the Messiah, by Scripture, must come through. Therefore, Messiah must have been born prior to 70 AD. Thank you, Lord, that you fulfill that prophecy and over 300 more. Thank you for your faithfulness. We love you and we praise you in the name of Yeshua. Amen.